You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to 3CR's Radioactive Show, produced at my home in lockdown on unceded Wurundjeri lands. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and welcome all First Nations people listening today. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The Radioactive Show is distributed across these stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network and brought to you with the financial support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC. Today we're going back to school with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN's, Ban School. It's a series of webinars kicked off with Class 1, all about the ban, which included a deep dive into the articles as explained by ICANN Treaty Coordinator Tim Wright, and included a look at the Pacific's role in shaping the treaty with Dr Vanessa Griffin, a Fijian-Australian activist and founding member of the nuclear-free and independent Pacific movement. Tim Wright begins our show with his explanation of the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. So, let's get into it. Um, What is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons? Well, it's the the first comprehensive um, global prohibition on nuclear weapons. It's also the first multilateral legal framework for eliminating nuclear weapon stockpiles, And it's the first multilateral legal framework for addressing the harm that nuclear weapons have caused. Um, It was negotiated and adopted in 2017 at the UN with the support of 122 states. And as you know, it entered into force um, earlier this year on the 22nd of January. So as Jem said, I'll be covering three topics or or answering three questions. Uh, Why was it negotiated? Uh, What are its different provisions? And and what effect might it have? So why was it negotiated? Well, primarily it was based on the uh, deep concern of the international community and civil society about the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. So the, the immediate consequences of a nuclear weapon detonation, as well as the broader uh, impacts that particularly multiple nuclear detonations would have uh, on the climate, on agriculture, on migration, on the global economy, and so on. And there were many discussions uh, preceding the negotiations based on these uh, humanitarian concerns. And connected to that was a, a belief that the Uh, risk of a nuclear weapon being used was increasing. Another reason that the treaty was negotiated is that uh, there had been a lack of progress in advancing nuclear disarmament. So even though the nuclear armed states were saying uh, that they were committed to nuclear disarmament, what they were doing and what they still are doing is investing heavily in the modernisation of their nuclear forces and, and so moving in the, in the wrong direction, and that needed to be uh, reversed. And the other reason 
that the treaty was negotiated was the international community concluded that there was a gap in international law that needed to be filled, that the existing uh, legal framework governing nuclear weapons was inadequate. Uh, so the, the non-proliferation treaty from the 1960s uh, was primarily concerned with stopping the spread of nuclear weapons while establishing a general obligation to pursue disarmament, but, but nothing more uh, than that. There was a ban negotiated in the 1990s on all types of nuclear testing. Um, there have also been regional uh, bans negotiated uh, in the form of nuclear weapon-free zones, but no, uh, nothing uh, comprehensive in nature uh, as existed for, for chemical weapons and biological weapons and, and so on, other types of weapons that had been deemed uh, unacceptable on humanitarian grounds. So there, there, that's in short why this, uh, this treaty was negotiated in 2017. What are its provisions? We'll go through article by article. Um, article one, uh, and I think this is something we, we don't um, often spend time doing, but we've got a few minutes here, the start of band school to, um, to, to go back to the basics of what this document actually says. Um, article one sets out the prohibitions. So all the, all the kinds of things related to nuclear weapons uh, are there. Um, that you would expect to be prohibited. So you can never, under any circumstances, use the weapons, produce the weapons, test the weapons, stockpile the weapons, and so on. Um, you, you also can't threaten to use the weapons. Um, you can't host the weapons on your territory. And importantly, uh, for a country like Australia um, and, and many of the European countries, uh, particularly those that are part of NATO, you can't assist or encourage another country to engage in any of the prohibited activities. And, and this, is a, this is an important aspect of the treaty because it recognises that the number of countries that are um, contributing to the problem of nuclear weapons is much greater than the nine that actually possess them. It includes all of these uh, kind of accomplices uh, which this uh, treaty seeks to address. Article 2, when you join the treaty, you need to declare uh, whether you have nuclear weapons, have had them in the past, or whether you possess them on your territory. So that's the, uh, that kind of determines um, what obligations or how the, how the treaty's obligations relate um, to your country. Uh, Article 3, the safeguards. Uh, you need to have in place, a country needs to have in place uh, safeguards, which are measures to ensure that... Um, nuclear materials and nuclear facilities are used purely for so-called peaceful purposes, that they're not used for uh, weapons-related purposes. And those safeguards are similar to the, to the ones found under the um, Non-Proliferation Treaty. Article 4, this is the article that relates to the elimination of, of nuclear weapons. So a country uh, that has nuclear weapons has two options. It can either get rid of its nuclear arsenal before joining or it can get rid of its arsenal um, in accordance with the provisions of the treaty. If it chooses the former pathway, then it needs to be able to give assurance to the uh, state's parties to the treaty that it actually has done uh, what it says it's done and that there aren't any nuclear weapons anymore in that state. Uh, in, if, if it joins the treaty as a nuclear-armed state, 
Um, it needs to immediately remove the weapons from operational status. It, it's prohibited from using and threatening to use the weapons. But in terms of actually getting rid of the weapons, that would be done in accordance with a time-bound plan. And the plan would be negotiated with a, comp a competent international authority and it would need to be agreed by all of the parties to the treaty. So this, this kind of um, arrangement the negotiators felt provided enough flexibility as well as enough uh, certainty in, in, in what would happen um, in the event that a nuclear armed state joins. Another part of Article 4 is that a country that has nuclear weapons of another country stationed on its territory needs to ensure the prompt removal um, of those weapons. Article 5, um, this is on national implementation. A country needs to take all of the necessary steps under its own um, domestic uh, legal system to ensure that it can implement its obligations under the, the treaty. Uh, and so that would mean, uh, for example, uh, ensuring that uh, the prohibited activities are criminalised um, under domestic law and so on. Articles 6 and 7 are the articles on victim assistance, environmental remediation and international cooperation. And I'll leave those ones to uh, Bonnie Doherty uh, later on. Article 8 um, sets out the uh, meetings, relates to the meetings of states' parties. So this is where all of the countries that have joined the treaty uh, come together to discuss issues of implementation and they can make uh, decisions in relation to the treaty that might need to be made. So they could come up with action plans for implementation and so on. The first of these meetings is scheduled to take place in January next year uh, in Vienna. Article 9 relates to costs. Some of the costs are shared between the parties. Costs related to the destruction of nuclear weapon stockpiles are to be covered by the countries that uh, actually possess the weapons. Article 10, amendments. Um, the treaty can be amended, but it's a very uh, difficult process. Uh, international law is primarily consent-based, so you can't amend a treaty uh, without the um, consent of some of the, the parties. They need to, each party individually needs to um, accept any amendment that, that might be made. Um, so we're not expecting any um, amendments in, in the near future, that's for sure. Article 11, um, settlement of disputes. Um, if disputes arise in relation to the treaty, uh, countries need to uh, try to resolve those disputes through negotiation uh, and by peaceful means. Um, there's, it's very difficult to force a country to do anything that it doesn't want to do, um, but um, we can discuss it and use um, various um, judicial means as well as um, uh, yeah, means within the, within the um, treaty processes to try to resolve the disputes. Article 12, an important article, universality. Any country that joins the treaty needs to encourage other countries to join it. So we should be expecting all of the state's parties to be um, out there uh, raising this as an issue of concern with Australia and others that haven't yet joined. 
Article 13, signature, when a country signs the treaty, it's making a kind of a political um, commitment to the treaty. Um, it's not yet bound by it. In order to be bound by the treaty, it needs to ratify uh, ratify it uh, in accordance with Article 14. And we've had 54 countries ratify uh, the treaty so far or accede to it. Um, Article 15, entry into force. We know that the treaty as a whole entered into force um, earlier this year. That means that it's legally binding um, on the countries that have ratified or acceded to it so far. Any country that ratifies it from now on, um, uh, the treaty will be binding on that country 90 days after it ratifies. Article 16, reservations. A country cannot enter into reservations with respect to the treaty, so it can't say that this provision doesn't apply to it or this provision applies in some modified way. That's not allowed under the treaty. Article 17, duration and withdrawal. The treaty is permanent in nature, um, uh, but a country can withdraw from it. Uh, this is a fairly standard uh, feature of many of most uh, multilateral treaties negotiated in recent decades. Uh, so we don't see this as a, a major shortcoming. Uh, Article 18 uh, describes the relationship uh, of the treaty to other treaties. Um, Article 19 establishes the UN Secretary General as the depository. Um, so he or she in the future is the one who uh, organises the meetings of states parties and accepts the instruments of ratification and so on. And the treaty exists in uh, six, uh, Article 20, the treaty exists in um, six official languages and they're all equally authentic. So there's the treaty for you, Articles uh, 1 through to 20, done. Um, finally, uh, what impact will it have? Um, to be honest, we don't expect the treaty to have dramatic immediate uh, effects. The, the effects will be seen over time, um, and in particular, as more countries join the treaty, the normative impact that it has will, will uh, increase. Um, so we want this treaty to be putting pressure on nuclear armed states and other states that are doing the wrong thing to come into conformity with the new international law uh, norm. So we think that this is going to change the calculus for political decision-making in many countries. Uh, we're already seeing how... It's influencing some of the debates in uh, a number of European countries, including in the context of elections. Um, and we hope that it will have a meaningful impact on uh, the lives of communities affected, people in communities affected by uh, past use and testing of nuclear weapons. Uh, we've already had a few of these countries join the treaty. Um, Kazakhstan, Kiribati, uh, Fiji all have people who are affected by nuclear testing. Uh, Algeria is expected to join very soon. Um, and in the longer term, uh, we of course hope that uh, that one or more of the the nuclear um, states will will join the treaty, and that there, uh, as the international and domestic pressure in those states increases, they will. Um, really feel the power of this treaty and feel the need to um, come into the to the international mainstream. That was Tim Wright, ICANN Treaty Coordinator, talking about the expected effects of the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, created for 3CR and distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next, we hear from Dr Vanessa Griffin, 
a Fijian Australian activist and founding member of the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement. Dr Griffin speaks about the role of the Pacific in shaping the Ban Treaty. Um, hello, everyone, um, and and thanks, um, Tim, for going ac- ac- actually through all the treaty because it kind of is sometimes a reminder to re- to read the thing that we're um, talking so much about. Hello, everyone. I'm um, originally from Fiji and was part of the Pacific anti-nuclear movement in its early stages. I'm not sure how much many, I'm presuming many of you know about the Pacific Island region and how much it was used for nuclear testing. So I won't go into that in too much detail, but just try and um, stick to maybe the the overall topic, the Pacific's role in um, nuclear disarmament activism and the treaty negotiations. But what I see now is a change that the Pacific Island states are in a different position now and how how that is in fact um, reflective of many other states that have helped bring this treaty um, into being that you also have a change of who discusses nuclear disarmament and and which countries take part so I'll try and um, do testing but really move on to that so um, by the Pacific here just to be clear I of course mean the Pacific Island states States um, that occupy that great span of Pacific Ocean, which we normally think is empty. And I kind of mean the North Pacific, the South Pacific, and that whole um, space of the Pacific Ocean where there are many Pacific Island states. I'm going to be referring, um, there are many Pacific countries, but I'll limit myself to like the 12 that have uh, independent status in the United Nations and can participate um, as, as, as one, one country, one vote in many, you know, many of the of these deliberations. And um, they did play a role in the um, treaty. And I I sort of want to just recap why the Pacific Islands were uh, so committed to the treaty. And what was different, not the treaty alone, but all the um, steps before that. Um, Just to recap the dreadful history that we have, which is the fact of the North Pacific and the South Pacific, and um, basically three places being um, sites for significant testing of these weapons. And so um, just to um, restate those, as a region, we've had so many nuclear tests done in our part of the world and on our peoples. And so um, the more significant beginning was the UN Trust Territory after the war that was in the United States hands. And what did the first thing it did after the actual bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to continue to develop these new weapons and they were developed there in the Marshall Islands, basically amongst the Pacific peoples. So the three main areas of um, nuclear testing in the Pacific were the Marshall Islands for the United States test, um, Christmas Island and other atolls in now present-day Kiribati, which the UK used for tests and the US also participated. They were allies. Late in the program, you will have reference to the Australian test, so I won't um, bring that up. Um, But then we have so-called French Polynesia, where you have French nuclear tests, and that was for a very long time and by the sixth beginning in the mid-1960s. And that's when you have a chance for um, more Pacific voices to come in as many of our countries were becoming independent to actually respond to what was happening. But um, the Marshall Islands, all of that, let's face it, was done in the complete darkness of 
isolation and we, we simply weren't on an international in any position to even know what was happening there. So um, it's the duration and newness of, of the test that um, and the and the, um, the duration, particularly of the French test, which has given us time to really walk through and live as other Pacific Islanders from other states where there were not tests to see the impacts of nuclear testing and all be um, very united against that. So we've had 30 years of French nuclear tests. And as you know, um, French Polynesia is a, still a so-called colony. This gives us um, a chance to look at the impacts of testing. And I will just do these in categories because it's very relevant to what, um, when Bonnie speaks late on victims assistance and environmental remediation, we are one part of the world, but of course there were nuclear tests of these weapons done in so many parts of the world. And these are all common impacts, meaning the consequences that one can see apart from the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Tests give you a chance to see on human population, the environment, actually what these weapons do, and they're irrefutable um, evidence of what happens. So um, I'm just going to list some of them as, as part of um, categories of impacts. There's dislocation, people literally move and never go back to where they once belonged. And even if they do go back, the land is contaminated and you can't stay there ever again, even if you want to. Um, there's loss of lands and islands in the Pacific case, lands and other people's um, cases. Um, for the Pacific, you know, the tests were atmospheric, so there you have radioactive fallout. We're also part of the ocean, so the fallout also, in our case, this particular goes into the water and into the food source and so on in a different way. Health impacts, that moved the Pacific peoples across the board from all the other Pacific countries other than test sites. It's knowing what would happen to us as peoples, but even to um, those at the test site that I think really galvanized a response to nuclear tests. And the difference now is we have a response um, of to, to the nuclear weapons of them. So those, those impacts are still relevant to what we're talking about, which is a prohibition of these weapons. Um, the health impacts are basically horrendous forms of illness and disease, particularly cancers, um, genetic damage, which can be to the newborn, to the unborn, and then to future generations. And we have seen that. There are witnesses um, that you have from the Pacific. And um, the radio contamination, the environmental damage, actually stays on, as we know, that's the nature of radioactivity, well after the tests have stopped. So in, I'll just list two things, Runit Dome in the Marshall Islands, that's where the nuclear waste was simply covered over with basically a big bit of looks like cement. It's a few, not very far from the sea, and there's concern about that breaking and cracking. In, in French Polynesia, the, the shafts that were used for the underground tests, um, there's concern about those breaking. And even we in the Pacific can get so disconnected from French Polynesia and its and it's reporting that, you know, they, they're still trying to even tell the rest of us that if there was a leakage or breakdown, you, you know, they're anticipating a tsunami of radioactive waste which would go on the sea. So those are the th kind of things that could happen, but they're also, everything I've listed has happened. It's not, it's not theoretical or hypothetical. So, um, 
for, for any of the details, those of you who would like more details, please go to the ICANN Pacific publication on that whole history um, and the impacts, and because it's very good and well illustrated. Okay, just to say then we did have a very big protest movement in the Pacific, and that went on for many years. But to draw the contrast with now, that was a broad CSO movement, many organizations, and we could only protest nuclear testing, and it made no difference. And so um, when the testing stopped over time, the organization was very good, but we actually on the civil society and that broad movement side, we have had a lapse. But what's significant now in terms of the new Pacific involvement in nuclear disarmament is the involvement of Pacific states, the significance of their political status, of being independent states, of being in the UN system. 12 of them are there, that's quite a significant number, but the real significance is they remember that history. Decades later, they did not forget. And, and, and the position of our states have been, um, they've kept up the history, they've been involved, I think they've contributed. But the difference is on the, on the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, what preceded it was this shift that we are not going to regard this as a security issue, we need to look at humanitarian impacts. Um, you have a whole different framework with which any of us from the Pacific, including our states, can get involved. And that is then looking at impacts and the destructiveness of what happened. And so you can see we do a bridge between our testing history and knowing what happened and this, this path to an instrument that is a legal instrument and that is ultimately um, the, you know, the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And so... Um, uh, our states were involved all along the way in the many different steps of resolutions. But just to recap some statistics, just to get an um, idea, eight states um, voted for, were in the room to be able to vote for the adoption of the treaty in 2017. And seven, I say seven independent states are now states parties. And then you have Niue and Cook Islands, also states parties, but they come in under New Zealand with a particular relationship there. So for us, we're in a different position now. And I think our states have done a, a significant job, not just in the whole international movement, that contributed to this event, but also for the Pacific. I actually later went, our states are really doing a good job and they are um, um, a, a numbers to be, um, numbers that really can contribute. And I do want to say that with New Zealand, we have 10 um, um, countries from the Pacific and nine uh, Pacific Island states that were of the first 50 that helped bring this treaty um, into force, in the entry into force. So now to think of them as states parties there, they do have a, um, a new role that they can play in the nuclear disarmament um, arena. So thanks very much. That was Dr. Vanessa Griffin. Fijian Australian activist and founding member of the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement speaking about the role of Pacific nations who have been directly affected by nuclear weapons in bringing the ban treaty into existence. You have been listening to The Radioactive Show, today sharing Class 1 from ICANN's Band School. You can join in on the school by heading along to ICANN's website at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. Thanks to Tim Wright and Dr Vanessa Griffin, and the excellent team at ICANN Australia for sharing important information with this initiative 
and all the vital work you do smashing nuclear norms and creating a future free from the threat of nuclear weapons. That's it for today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR at my home in lockdown in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across these stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. You can find previous Radioactive Show podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. If you want to get in touch, please call us at the 3CR office on 03 Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.